welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by C.R. Wiley on September 12th, Lord's Day Service. Just wanted a real quick note that the first five minutes of this talk, the audio is missing, and then the next five minutes, the audio is really poor. We uh, apologize for this, but if you hang in there, the audio does eventually improve. Thanks. And then when it comes to the matter of, you know, the church, as well as the household, people are like, wow, uh, I'd like to revisit these things and have a better understanding of just what we stand for as Christians. What are these things? So, uh, this little talk is uh, summarizing, kind of going through quick, is uh, something I refer to as against the recreational household. So, against the recreational household. Now, back, uh, you know, before the end of the Industrial Revolution kind of swept through the Western world, uh, everybody worked from home. Everybody worked from home. Mom, dad, the kids, everybody, everybody worked from home. Now, Generally speaking, when you say that, family farms come to mind. And, that, and, and that's, I think, uh, understandable because, you know, at one time in our society, hard as it is to imagine now, like 8% of households were, you know, farming households. Now, often these were subsistence households, right? You know, you, 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 you ate what you grew. You know, you ate what you slaughtered. It was, it was for your, your immediate family. And if you had some that left over, maybe you sold it in the market. Uh, that's different now, of course, with the rise of industrial agriculture. And uh, but the uh, phenomenon of everybody working from home didn't stop with the farm. So often you would have entire families working in a trade. So if you're the coopers, guess what you did? You were all coopers. In other words, you made you no know, barrels. If you were uh, you know, uh, smiths, guess what your father was? Or your husband was, he was a smith. And it wasn't just, you know, dad's out, uh, you know, downtown working in a smithy. No, dad is either downstairs or out back, and often the wife was handling all the accounts receivable, you know, and, and paying anybody who's working in the household economy. All the kids were helping out. That was just the way it was. Everybody worked from home. Now, when the Industrial Revolution occurred, obviously, uh, things changed. People went to the workplace. Isn't that interesting how we use that term, the workplace? As opposed to the household, you know, we think of the household, uh, you know, after the Industrial Revolution as a place where you go to get away from work, to recreate, to, you know, kind of let your hair down and relax. Uh, but, you know, with the advent of the, of the you know, workplace where you know you have factories and often uh, these factories require a great deal of capital to you know uh, underwrite uh, in part because the equipment was just so huge and immovable. So like back where we where we did, uh, lived for years in New England, uh, in Connecticut, a town called Tom. Tom was over three years old. It's, it, was a, it was sort of a breakaway from an even older town. Uh, one of the oldest towns uh, in, the, in the entire Western Hemisphere, uh, Windsor. And so if you go to the town hall in Tallinn, yeah, they've got the list of the war dead, and it begins with the French and Indian Wars. And uh, guess what? That's the longest list. 
of a war day. Because the war was 20 miles down the road. Pastors would get up and actually preach sermons to the church about how to conduct, you know, just war uh, as they went to So I've got a friend, his name's Christian Cuthbert, and uh, Christian's doing some postdoctoral work down at Yale. And he actually has uh, a number of sermons that Jonathan Edwards preached on the war. He prepared to go out and fight. So the men in the church go out and fight. So uh, these. And, and it's cool because Christian is like actually working with the, the doctors, you know, Jonathan Edwards handwriting, <laughs> you know, on, this, on the very paper that Jonathan Edwards wrote this, these sermons. Anyway, so that was the world that uh, existed. Now, when the Industrial Revolution occurred, well, I know what I was going to say. Another thing we've got in our area is we've got towns that were established during the colonial era. So the town that we lived in was established during that time. So uh, I've been in it many times and when we lived there, went to our church. Um, but uh, there are another set of towns that were built in the Industrial Revolution. And they were always built where there was good water. You know, you know so it was usually in some kind of uh, location where you had a lot of water pressure, a lot of, uh, so you could drive the machinery. So you would know, create a, a water dynamo and the water dynamo would you know, make all of the looms or whatever was being driven uh, work. So everybody had to live within walking distance. So those towns are very dense. The old, you know, sort of colonial towns are kind of spread out. Everybody, you know, had the land that they needed to farm. But in the industrial towns that were established in the 19th century, they're all, you know, every, all the houses are right close to the old factories, and everybody walked. And there are a lot of multifamily homes and stuff like that. But uh, what happened in the first phase of the Industrial Revolution is entire families moved into the factories. This is why we had child labor. The reason we had child labor was not because we had a bunch of mean capitalists <laughs> who said, we make everybody work, even little children, get in there. <laughs> no, it didn't work like that at all. How it worked was kids with mom had always worked. Dad goes to work, I go to work. You know, I, I, another interesting place uh, that I've been to a few times is uh, Fairmont, West Virginia. Fairmont, West Virginia, like the old coal mines. Uh, they've got, you're from West Virginia? Yeah, great, great state. Um, but uh, I was at a, at a church camp that was built right over a mine, the Fairmont mine. And they have photographs of the boys. Who were in the mines? I mean, these these are kids, kids are your age and younger, going a mile under, you know, into the earth, and uh, they they all look like you know tough guys. You know, they're just covered with dirt and you know coal dust and everything, and and they have the look in their eyes that they have seen men die. They just have that have that look. They're hardened. And you can tell the ethnic groups are coming from the Italian boys, the Scots Irish boys, the Polish boys. And they're all kind of in this big group, you know. And uh, the, the kids in the center really look tough. <laughs> and, you know, they're like the gang leaders, you know. But, anyways, they would take them in, and, you know, those are the boys who would go into the places where the full grown men couldn't go to see if that might be, you know, you know a profitable, you know, uh, sort of thing to, to kind of take the, the, you know, the digging in a new direction. And they would, you know, they were often, 
guy, kids are squeezed into these little tiny spaces, you know. Just amazing stuff. Anyways, the mine is shut down because uh, if you let anybody in, you may never come out. They were that big, you know, you know miles of tunnels underground. But anyway, that was the world that the industrial, you know, and so the first phase of, you know, sort of social action to try to preserve the household was uh, designed to get women and children back home. That was the first thing. We can't have all these children, these women, you know, in these, you know, awful environments where you've got these huge machines that can kill you, deep underground where you can die, that kind of stuff. So that's uh, what we see in the latter part of the 19th century. Um, but I think, you know, what you see, of course, with that is a departure from what our ancestors knew for thousands of years. The world we live in now is the exception, not the rule. This is the different thing. That was normal for thousands of years. Wherever you had an agricultural society, and you got to have an agricultural society for civilization, otherwise you're just hunter-gatherers. You're just going where the food is, right? Following the seasons, that kind of stuff. Now, you know, we, there, there were, you know, peoples, groups of people, American, and some Native American communities that uh, did that. In some parts of Africa, that's the case. But, you know, in Asia, South America, parts of Africa, Europe, where you had, uh, you know, in, you know, you know uh, agricultural civilizations, where you had large urban centers like Babylon or Jerusalem, households were the building blocks. Households were the building blocks. Not the individual. The individual is what we see emerge in the modern era with the industrial civilization. We try, to, we try to peel away people from households so that they can be cogs in vast machines. That's the world that we live in. Now, uh, for a lot of folks, this is not exactly uh, ideal. And a lot of folks feel like we've lost a lot in the process. But it's transformed the way we think about households and it's transformed the way we think about work. And now, as I noted before, uh, households are for recreation. It's where you go at the end of the day to kind of crash. And people, when they think about doing significant things, they think about doing things somewhere else, not at home. You know, I'm, you know, you might have heard, you know, somebody say kind of, you know, in a derogatory way, oh, you're just a housewife. Something like that. Well, the implication is nothing really important happens there. If you want to be an important person, you need to go to the place where important things happen. And of course, a lot of people like doing important things, including women. <laughs> and so you, you, get, you get this sense that if I want to be significant, if I want to do something important, if I want to be affirmed, I've got to you know, do something someplace else. Now, we, uh, we are in an interesting time. Uh, I think that uh, with the time that we are in because of the pandemic, uh, people are rediscovering home all over the place. Uh, one of the marvelous sort of ironies of, you know, the information age, sort of the thing that came next after the industrial age, is that, you know, we don't need you here in the office. <laughs> you can work from anywhere you want. And a lot of folks are saying, fine, I always hated my cubicle. <laughs> I'm ready to be around my kids all day and that kind of thing. Now, some folks who don't like kids don't want to do that. But uh, a lot of folks who do uh, 
are rediscovering home economics. Now, the word uh, economy is a, is a marvelous word because it tells us the story I just told. The word uh, economics uh, comes from a compound word uh, in Greek, oikos nomos. So, you just run them together, oikos nomos, and you anglicize it, you get economics. But oikos is the Greek word for house. Nomos is the Greek word for law. So economics is the law of the house. Isn't that, a, isn't that a fascinating thing? We don't think about houses in that way anymore. When we think about economics, we think about the market, right? The big economy, the global economy, that kind of thing. And uh, it's uh, consequently, um, you know, something that's lost on us now, this, this uh the sense that the household in the in you know the world of the you know, our ancestors was ordered to be productive. That's the thing. So it wasn't ordered to recreate. <laughs> you know, it was ordered to be productive. We have things to do here if we're going to live. So what you know, one of the challenges that we have raising kids today is we have make work. I don't know if you've thought about it this way. Clean your room. You know, and a kid says, "I don't want to," and he says, "You say." Clean your room anyway. And the kid says, I don't mind a messy room. <laughs> you know, and so now you're just in this sort of make, you know, sort of trying to justify, you know, cleaning. No, just so you know, I, I like clean rooms. Not against clean rooms. And I, and I expect that uh, you want your kids to clean their rooms, and I'm, all, I'm, I'm behind you 100%. But uh, in the old world, uh, when Dad said, go out and get the cattle on the back 40 and bring them in, or they're going to die in the blizzard, there's a different force <laughs> to the statement, right? You can see the stakes. This is not just about doing what you want. This is what needs to be done if we are going to survive. And this is like every day. We have to do things together to survive. Now, if you have that in mind, when you go to the household codes in the New Testament, it has a whole different kind of, they have a whole different kind of feel. We're not just talking about a recreational household like where you're saying, what's dad in charge of? Well, the TV remote control, you know, his lazy boy recliner, you know, that kind of thing. Where we're going on vacation, you know, not that. What dad's in charge of is survival. So his authority was unquestioned because often he was the most productive member of the household. He defended its interests. In fact, Oikonomikos, which is that, which is a handbook that was written in the fourth century B.C. by Xenophon, in which uh, uh, Socrates, it's a Socratic dialogue, has two conversations. So it wasn't just Plato that wrote Socratic dialogues, but in these uh, this con these conversations, you have Socrates talking to a house a head of house whose house is falling apart. It's just deep in debt. They can't you know, sort of work well together. It's just, there are a lot of problems. And then he goes and he talks to a guy named Iskomakis, who's got, like, the, the reputation of having the most organized, best, most productive household in the entire community. And, and Socrates says, what's your secret? How do you do this? And one of the things that he notes uh, in this dialogue is that, is that the, the head of the house, the father, practiced the martial arts weekly. There were no standing armies. There was no police force. In that world, you didn't pick up the phone and say, hey, our house is being broken into. Can you come down here? 
You know, you didn't have that. The heads of house fought for their households, which reinforced their authority. The heads of house didn't send the slaves out to fight. He went out to fight, leading his sons. That's how it worked. So, with all those things in mind, when the Apostle Paul, in uh, you know, uh, you know, passage like Corinthians uh, chapter three, verses eighteen through you know four, verse one, when he says this stuff, it's a whole different feel. Wives, submit to your husbands. As is fitting in the Lord, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So you've got this, you know, sort of environment within which these commands have a lot of force. You know, this isn't oppression. This is survival. We gotta live. And Christian households ought to be even more productive and they ought to glorify God. So um, you know, with with all of that in mind, I want to think with you a little bit about uh, you know just these these dynamics. And one one of the things that often escapes us is another dimension of all of this, and that's how the household reflects the kind of God's economy, how God orders things. So um, there's a passage in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 14 and 15, where the Apostle Paul, uh, he uh, engages in a little wordplay in Greek. And we miss the, the, the joke or the, you know, the, the, the wordplay because we read it in English, and it just makes no sense. But in Greek, it made all the sense in the world. So let me tell you uh, what I'm talking about here. So here the Apostle Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, when you, when you read that in English, you're like, well, that's curious. I didn't know my family was named for the Heavenly Father. So it's every family, right, in heaven and on earth is named for the Heavenly Father. And you're like, I, I, I don't know why that makes any sense. But in Greek, it makes sense. Because in Greek... The word for father and the word for family have the same root. In other words, in Greek, you can't have a family without a father. Let that sink in. Patera and patria, those are the words. So family is patria, father is patera. So this is where we get the, you know a lot of uh, significant words like patriotism. Patriotism comes from this, patria. Um, so when you're saying I'm patriotic, you're saying not just that I'm loyal to you know, this land, I'm loyal to the land that nourishes and sustains my family. Patriotism. Um, patrimony. Patrimony is your, your inheritance, what's been handed down, the tradition, and so forth. And yeah, patriarchy. <laughs> patriarchy comes from this. Uh, you know, patria, patera, and then arche means rule, the rule of the father. So the rule of the father. Now, of course, fathers could be tyrannical. They could be harsh. They could be, you know, dumb. They could make mistakes. But uh, we have that right now in American politics. <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't say we need to get rid of the presidency because the current person in the office is, you know, not what we would like. The office is the office. And likewise, 
you know, the, the father has an office. Again, it's a way of thinking that escapes us. Father has an office. There are duties that uh, you know belong to him. There are duties that belong to mothers. Duties that belong to children. The word duty. Have you thought about the word duty at all? We don't use that word much anymore. You know, it's in our world today. It's all about you know you. You know, you do you. <laughs> do what makes you happy. You know, I just want him, her, it. I don't know whatever it decides it is. Be happy. Uh, in you know uh, antiquity and right up until not too long ago, that just was insane. You know everybody understood that if people didn't do their duty, their duty perform their duties, everything would fall apart. People would be just in a whole heap of trouble. Um, the word piety, you might be familiar with the word piety. Uh, its uh, origin is uh, Latin pius, and uh, piety. In, the, in antiquity wasn't uh, going out in the woods and having a, a little talk with Jesus. And that wasn't piety. You know, that might be part of it, but piety was doing your duty. And familial duties were at the very top of, uh, you know, things that you were responsible for. They were your duties. And the image in antiquity in, in Rome of, you know, uh, someone who performed his duties, a pious man, the most pious man in the history of the Roman, you know, you know, sort of culture of Roman culture, was Aeneas, who is uh, believed to be the founder of Rome. So Aeneas was a Trojan, and the and the Romans believed that they were the descendants of the Trojans. So when the Romans finally conquered the Greeks later on during the empire, it was like payback time. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, Aeneas, uh, this uh, hero, this uh, Trojan hero carries his father on his back out of Troy as the city is burning all around him. And he has a son by, in one, you know, holding his son's hand in, with one hand, a sword in the other hand, and his father on his back. And the Romans, in order to get across the idea that a, that a man has responsibilities to his children and to his, his parents, put the image of Aeneas with his father on his back on their coins. We actually have those coins, you can see. And then it has pius or piety. You know, this is a pious man. Follow his example. And there are images of women taking care of children. Pius, piety. This is a woman's way of being pious and so forth. So you, this is really part of the whole way of thinking, the whole, you know, in, in antiquity. Now, there's a, there's a fascinating uh, episode in Acts chapter 2. 10, that no one gets, not, you know, not even Bible commentators, because they had not read the Aeneid. <laughs> in, the, in the empire, the Aeneid was commissioned by Caesar Augustus at great expense. Virgil was the Roman poet laureate of the people, and he was to create the, the epic, you know, the great poem of the Roman people, and it was the Aeneid. And uh, so everybody knew this in antiquity, including Jews, including Christians, there are, you know, there's graffiti, you know, that we've dug up with lines from the Aeneid on the wall, you know, and, uh, and Chises, uh, the father of Aeneas, uh, set, you know, Aeneas in the story goes down to Hades and he sees his father who has died and his father gives him the commission, the commission to be, you know, the father of the Roman people. 
And the purpose of the Roman people is to rule the world. So his father commissions him to rule the world. Your job, O Romans. Let, let the Greeks make their pretty statues. <laughs> you know, and, their, and, their, and do all that other stuff. Your job is to rule the world. You know, to subject the world to Roman law. So that was the way Romans understood themselves. And everybody knew it because it was like everywhere. And in, in Acts chapter 10, right after Paul is converted, remember his Damascus Road experience? And right before Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, that Roman centurion, there's a guy who can't walk who's healed. Guess what his name was? Aeneas. The pivot point in the story, Aeneas, the man who carried his father out of the city that was burning to the ground, can't walk himself now. This is right after the, the, the great Roman civil wars. You know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people died in those wars. And uh, when Caesar Augustus came to power and established the, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, everybody was like, woohoo! <laughs> now we know you're the son of God, Augustus Caesar. And there was actually, there's actually carvings that we have of, of Caesar seated in heavenly places. Now, doesn't that language kind of ring a bell? Seated in heavenly places. We know he's seated in heavenly places because there we have, you know, we've got Neptune with the trident. You know, we've got, you know, the other gods, you know, you can tell who they are, you know. Uh, and he's sitting there in the middle of them. And so he's seated in heavenly places because he has made all of the, the rebels bow the knee to him. Now there's peace. And in Ephesians, we're told that Jesus is the one who's really seated in heavenly places who has defeated the principalities and power, and now every knee will bow to him in heaven and on earth. So when the, when the Romans would hear the, you know, the Christians say that, it was a direct challenge, direct challenge to the Roman self-understanding. But anyway, with all that in the background, our situation is very different now, as you know, as I have, have uh, uh, you know, hopefully gotten across. Now, um, how are we doing on time? Because I could talk about this stuff for days. <laughs> sure. Oh, okay. We will better shift to Q and A then. Okay. So, uh, you know, I've, I, I, it's been, uh, you know, conveyed to me that some folks have read my stuff about how to sort of bring this stuff back and do it in the modern world and do it in a way that makes sense for us and not be crazy and have to all live on the farm with uh, Wendell Berry. <laughs> You know, so I think it's possible, you know, to, to recover a lot of the, you know, the old practices and still live in a modern world in, a, in, a, in the economy that we live in now. So I've been working on that and thinking a lot about it. And so my books are intended to, to help revive the old household economy and to make it, you know, fit in our time, or at least change our time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.